This podcast is on narrative and great power competition. In this podcast, I'm simply going to introduce a few ideas behind what scholars consider the statecraft and tradecraft of narrative strategies, specifically from the government in Beijing and the government in Kremlin. Michael Pillsbury, known by some critics as a hardliner U.S. scholar against uh, China, believes that the approach that the Beijing government takes is to induce complacency to avoid alerting your opponent. He suggests that Beijing wishes to be patient for decades or longer to achieve victory, that decisive victories were never achieved quickly. He suggests that Beijing looks to manipulate their opponent's advisors, and I'm quoting from Michael uh, Pillsbury here. Chinese strategy emphasizes turning the opponent's house in on itself by winning over influential advisors surrounding the opponent's leadership apparatus. He suggests that military might is not the critical factor for winning a long-term competition. Again, this is from the perspective of the government in Beijing. Rather than relying on a brute accumulation of strength, Chinese strategy advocates targeting, targeting an enemy's weak points and biding one's time. And he finally suggests never lose sight of Qi, something that we'll talk about in a couple lessons. That is the indirect, the unseen, the patient, subversive, and influence strategies. That deceiving others into doing your bidding for you and waiting for the point of maximum opportunity to strike. This, he suggests, is a form of qi. According to the New York Times, Chinese approaches each individually are more subtle. Winning support for a trade and foreign policy agenda intended to boost its geographic, geopolitical standing. And according to a Chinese government spokesperson, that this is a war using the word war with lots of battles. Chinese influence and strategy approaches throughout the world follow certain narratives. Modernization, trade, and prosperity for all. Claiming a non-zero sum game, a win-win. But perhaps, according to some scholars and critics of the government in Beijing, what they say their quote-unquote weaponized narratives are incongruent with their actions. Critics suggest that they are a totalitarian, profit-driven capitalist regime with predatory loans to desperate governments, with a, a view towards a future supposed sea and land highway systems that will unlikely truly be free. According to some the president of China, its leaders in general, uses Western foundational narratives, that is respect for sovereignty and anti-racism, to attempt to influence or pre-influence people. So that way, people criticize China, they can say, oh, you're doing it out of racism, or you're not respecting our sovereignty. That is critics internationally. Chinese influence in a narrative approaches seem to differ or be specific to each region, country, and province. In Australia, for example, there are a number of recent scholarly articles that claim that they could become victim to a slow burn 
thousand prick approach to try to influence Australian politics. In its totality, there perhaps could be signs of potential strategic effects eventually. And each tactic is a differing level or differing shade of gray of subtlety, risk, deniability, indirectness, and insensibility. That at one time in Australia there were Confucius Institutes, which we'll discuss, that some academics claimed center, censored criticism of Beijing. That there were, one time, quiet, direct, and indirect donations to actual political campaigns. That there have been tracking and warning systems of Chinese nationals in Australia, as well as Chinese study abroad students, to tow the Beijing line. And China offers a number of free news outlets in the Chinese language that parrot state media biases, specifically on those Chinese Australians that perhaps may struggle a little bit with reading English. Now I want to move to the Kremlin and active measures, and you will see over the year some similarities, especially as the Kremlin has, has learned a lot from Eastern approaches and specifically Chinese approaches to warfare. I specifically want to talk about narrative with regards to Chi or excuse me, with regards to Russian active measures. The mindset of active measures includes that the best defense against subversion is offensive subversive strategies against adversaries, competitors, and even allies. Governments of Russia have often sought geographic buffer to stave off influence or invasion. From the Mongol invasions to Napoleon to Hitler, Russian governments often appear to value survival as a moral and national imperative in and of itself, the goal of survival justifying an array of ways and means. Also, to survive, the Kremlin appears often to favor order over other priorities. A strong FSB, stronger than their SVR, which we'll discuss if there's time in plenary, and keeping citizens confused or reminded of the chaos of the world outside Russian borders in order to make them want a strongman savior appears to be a road towards this order. Although Russia disinformation is played up in the media, the vast majority of influence in narrative warfare, that is the time, the money, the personnel, and the effort that the Kremlin take is offline in person. Some analysts suggest that online disinformation may, at times, perhaps be a purposeful distraction, essentially subterfuge. Make us focus on online disinformation, why offline, in-person influence uh, and narrative warfare is occurring. According to Mark Gelioti in 2019, and I quote here, the Kremlin has embraced a sense that Russia faces a Western campaign of subversion and that using active measures are the best and most logical response. Active measures make use of Russian strength to exploit perceived Western weaknesses, from its divisions to its commitment to free speech and open politics. He warns, though, 
Of course, this does not mean that every Russian individual or institution is necessarily involved in active measures. Most are not. And furthermore, most of the initiatives generated should not be considered active measures as they are often overt and well within the usual norms of political activity. However, the crowning irony, according to Mark, is that it has become very easy for foreigners to see the Kremlin's hand behind every reversal, every trip, every Russian initiative. This has an undeniably baleful impact on international relations, but at the same time likely suits Putin well, crediting him with more influence and impact in the world than he and his Russia truly deserve. Perhaps this is the greatest active measures of all. James Sher goes on to say one of the aims of the Russians pursuing what they have long called the initial period of war is to incapacitate a state as much as possible before that state is even aware that a conflict has started. This takes a page from 36 Stratagems and a number of other more ancient strategy literature that we find uh, in places like India and China, for example, and that is to undermine an enemy's ability to unite. So to take advantage of the schisms that already exist, exacerbate the schisms, that narrative warfare and influence in general is not about creating new ideas or putting out new ideas and starting new trends. It's about exploiting trends and ideas that already exist, in this case, exploiting schisms within societies. Anton Beria goes on from 1939, one-time head of intelligence services and a number of other titles. He suggests that by psychopolitics, our chief goals are effectively carried forward. To produce a maximum of chaos in the culture of the enemy is our first most important step. Our fruits are grown in chaos, distrust, a weary populace can seek peace only in our state. Edward Epstein in 1989, former Harvard professor, a one-time hardliner uh, Soviet scholar, suggests that victory, and he's speaking from the perspective of Russian government in general, although his book that, he's that he wrote this in, it talks about the Soviet Union from the perspective of the Kremlin, but he does in this passage refer to Russian governance in general. Victory will come not from any single decisive battle, but from the accumulation of gradual changes in the global balance of power. One superpower might find it lacks the allied resources or will to compete with the other. This assessment itself might be tantamount to losing without fighting, an echo from Sunza. Now I want to talk a little bit about the tactic of disinformation. It's going to be discussed in a lot of your lecture series at NDU. It's going to be discussed by guest speakers, although it may be viewed as a tactical level of information strategy. I think it's important to cover it quickly. And we can discuss this as you wish in plenaries and in seminars, especially in IWS beginning in January. So the tradecraft of disinformation may focus on concealing intent and means, 
playing the long game that is accumulation of tactics, exacerbating divides in target societies, and wrapping lies around kernels of truth. They're, perhaps they're somewhat believable. The focus may be on lowering confidence in all news outlets, especially internal to Russia, that is, focusing or targeting Russian citizens, obfuscating the real story. That confusion and uncertainty creates a yearning for a strong man. Under the pretense of informing audience, I'm quoting here, current Russian information doctrine is to disseminate disinformation, foment confusion, and spread conspiracy theories to lower everyone's confidence and trust in news outlets writ large. One of the memes that you're likely to see numerous times this year, and I want to talk about it quickly um, so that you are sort of ready for it, understand what it means. It's from the New York Times. It's called The Seven Commandments of Fake News. One, look for cracks in target societies. Two, create a big lie. Three, wrap the lie around a kernel of truth. Four, conceal your hand. Five, find yourself useful. a useful idiot. We'll discuss useful idiots and fellow travelers later on in the year. Six, deny everything. And seven, play the long game. Not necessarily original uh, and not necessarily with a lot of intellectual depth, but it is something that is used by a lot of lecturers. Thank you.